0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. While you're turning there, uh... What you just watched was a preview for a movie. It's going to be showing uh, one day, possibly a couple others, but somebody in our church was generous enough. They have uh, secured uh, quite a few tickets for us, and they are free for you if you just go and let them know that you're going to be a- attending. And so you can see there's a-, a table in the lobby. You can go out there, and find more about the movie, when it's showing, whether or not you and your family can go and check out. It looks like it's going to be really, really good, and uh, you'll hear us quote C.S. Lewis around here often. So I think it'll be well worth your time. Another thing while you're turning to 2 Corinthians 9, I want to you, make you aware of is uh, after third service today, we have what we call our baptism class. And so if you are uncertain about what the Bible says about baptism, if you've not been baptized, if you want to know what, where New Hope stands on this, we're going to be presenting that after third service in the student center, myself and David, and we'll do a Q&A right after. And so we'll, we'll present some what the Bible has to say about baptism, and then we'll answer questions and uh, hope to see you there. We would love to have you as a part of that class. And last, two weeks from today, is what we have what we call our Missions Sunday. Uh, the day that New Hope started was in what we call, now call the Mountain House, which is a maternity home here on our property. But the church was planted in that home. Back then, we called it the Willie House. And on the very first day that our church started, January the 9th, 1972, there was an offering taken up for missions. And there has been every week since. We partner with missionaries all over the world Uh, who are making disciples where we can't quite reach. And so one Sunday a year, we like to pause and celebrate all that's going on in those ministries. They will be set up in the lobby, uh, either the missionary or representatives of the missionary, both the global missionaries and local missionaries. And uh, that day we'll have Brother Wing Wong uh, from China with us here today. I'll be interviewing him uh, on on stage that Sunday morning. Would love to have you. I'm going to save his intro because if you've been here before when Wing Wong is here... It's pretty classic. I'll let him share that with you two weeks. We'd love to have you there. I want to open with a word of prayer uh, because um, what we do, we often overlook. I, I just there, There's a lot going on in a room like this. People are carrying all kinds of hurt and all kinds of confusion and struggle and celebration. And God is working in some really great ways in your life. And we come together like this. I think it's important to pause and just thank him for what he's doing in our lives. Pray over those who are struggling and having a hard time and celebrate what God's doing in your lives as well. Let's pray together uh, and then we'll jump into 2 Corinthians 9. Father, we thank you because you really are good and you have blessed us in so many ways. But we live in a broken world and there is some struggle and difficulty that goes on in our lives, many experiencing some frustration. When things aren't going the way we want, many experiencing confusion, struggle, walking through tragedy, While others here today are celebrating a good season where things are going really well and they feel very blessed, wherever we're at, Father, we pause to recognize that you are sovereign. You are in control of it all. So whether we are confused or we are frustrated or we are walking through pain and suffering or we are celebrating the goodness of a great season, we want to offer it to you, trusting that you see what we don't see and you know what we don't know. So in those moments, whether good or bad, we can pause to thank you, and we can pause to trust you. As we turn our attention to your word, I pray, Father, that you would speak clearly to us, that the Holy Spirit would have something for us from your word this morning, and we ask you for this in Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that I learned early on in ministry, um, whether being a part of the church or working at a church, was that no matter where you're from, uh, people in church get very uncomfortable. They get nervous when ministers, like me, talk about money. So here we go, all right? We have not done that very often in my ministry here at New Hope, uh, and that's for a variety of reasons. Uh, One being, I was very uncomfortable when I became a Christian as a senior in high school, coming from a very unchurched background, to early on in my walk with Jesus, having a guy that I barely knew stand up on stage and tell me exactly what I needed to be doing with my money didn't sit well with me. I have watched in the years since in my discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus, I've watched many churches and preachers, if that's what you'll call them, abuse people over and over again for their own financial gain. And that doesn't sit well with me either. And then also, I just personally can't stand gimmicky and inauthentic marketing appeals, like period. So I don't like TV. And certain commercials come on, I'm just like, ugh, like it makes you cringe. And then to think that that happens in the church, these inauthentic gimmicky appeals where someone stands up and guilts you into a rah-rah, let's give all of our money, again, just didn't sit well with me because it doesn't feel real, right? It doesn't feel real. And so I know that people get nervous because they think that a sermon like this, discussions like we're going to have today are really about a guilt trip so that I can manipulate you into writing a bigger check to our church. And so I want to put that, that worry or that concern uh, to, to, re- to rest this morning. And here's how I want to do that. Two things. One, if you've been here for a while, you know that we like to preach through books of the Bible. I think the most important thing is for you to hear from God. And so we're going to walk through books of the Bible. Now, we come up for air every once in a while. We'll do a short little thing. Like, we'll do something at Christmas this year. But, but 95% of the time when you're here at New Hope, we are walking straight through books of the Bible, verse by verse, teaching you what God's word says. And here's what that means. When you're preaching through Second Corinthians and you come to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, guess what? You've got to preach it. You've got to walk through it. No matter how much it would be easier in a culture like ours to jump from chapter 7 to chapter 10, we can't do that. We have to walk through what it says. And as those of us who are Christians who have said, yes, that we are, we are submitting our lives to the lordship of Jesus, this is an area of your discipleship that is vitally important. And so we're going to walk through it. The second thing, though, is this. And I want to start the second thing by saying this. Let's start from the assumption that God has no needs. God doesn't need our money. Now, he uses our gifts to advance his kingdom, but he doesn't need them. And he deserves our first and he deserves our best. It's what he deserves from us because of what Jesus did for us. But that's different than saying that he has a need. So that's why I think this is more of a discipleship issue than a fundraising issue. I think this is about how you and I respond to the gospel, what we do with our money, how we respond with our money. So I want to say this. Here's the second thing. If you've had a bad experience, if you've been manipulated by somebody, if you've been tricked and you are suspicious every time a preacher gets up and begins to talk about what the Bible has to say about money, I want to encourage you, give somewhere else. Don't give here. That's okay. Not compelling you just to give here. What I want you to do is I would rather you give somewhere else because you feel comfortable doing so than pause your discipleship journey. I want you to take that next step and grow in your discipleship. So if that means you don't give here, then don't give here. That's not the point. It's not the point of the text. And any preacher that gets up to tell you, man, this is about you giving just to hear," and you got to give here. No, if you've got some spot in your heart that's been hurt for some reason, you still need to take steps in your discipleship. And you still need in this area to become a generous person this is why our church is the way it is. It's a a group of people that have said yes to the lordship of Jesus, and so we're going to hold our resources with open hands. And this is the issue in 2 Corinthians. So as we continue through 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to be addressing this and he's going to spend he spent chapters 8 and today in chapter 9 persuading the churches in a, in a region called Achaia to give to the church in Jerusalem. They'd made this commitment to give to this church, the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem had been so generous. They're now suffering. They're going through their own season of difficulty. And all these other churches had made these commitments to give to them. And now Paul is worried that they might not. Why is he worried that they might not? Well, because he has spent most of 2 Corinthians defending his apostleship, his authority to speak to them on behalf of God they put it into question. And the church at Corinth had been infiltrated by a group of people that had began to cause other people to question whether or not Paul should even have the authority to speak truth to them. And so Paul has defended that over and over again. And now he has reason to be concerned that if they're calling into question his authority, they might also not follow through on their commitment to give to the church in Jerusalem. And he couldn't have that. And so as he gets to chapters 8 and 9, he begins to call them to the carpet and say, hey, you have to take this very seriously. And so in in the beginning, he uses an example of another church of chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. He uses the church in Macedonia. He says, hey, this is a church that did it right. And he points to them and he says their testimony should have an impact on your life. I think that's a healthy thing. When churches operate in silos, we've got a problem. But when churches can look out and see what other churches are doing and let it inspire them to follow closer to God, that is a beautiful thing. And that's what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 8. He uses the church in Macedonia to inspire the church in Corinth to follow through on their commitment to the church in Jerusalem. But he's also really blunt in chapter 8, which I appreciate. It's more my speed, where he looks at them and he says, point blank, you've been given a lot of money, you are wealthy and you need to be generous. And he doesn't hold back. He doesn't pull back punches on it. He's very open with them. That's one of the things that stands out to me in chapters eight and nine that I really appreciate is how forward he is with it. He tells them, you need to be a generous people, but he, he, he blankets the conversation this way. He says this, it's a, it's a good principle for you to hold on to. When Paul starts or has conversations on generosity, he won't start with God having a need. He starts instead with a grace that God wants to give. This is the tone that Paul is going to take in chapter 9 when he talks specifically about money. It's not so much God has a need and you need to give to God because he has this need. It's no, God has everything that he needs. And when it comes to your money, when it comes to you giving, it's about what God wants to do in your heart as you become a generous person. As you apprentice and disciple underneath Jesus, one of the areas of your life he's going to press on is what you do with your money. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 6 to see how Paul has this conversation with this church. Verse 6, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. I love this. He doesn't hold back. Hey, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. What is he saying there? Like, hey, if you invest sparingly into God's kingdom, you're going to experience parts of God's kingdom in a sparing way. And if you're generous and open-handed with it, that's what happens as well. And I love how he says, when it comes to your financial giving, you need to take it so seriously that when you come and you gather together as a church and it's time for you to give, you have to have spent time doing the pre-work. This is why he says you shouldn't be giving under compulsion. You should have already been praying about this. Let me ask you this. How many times have you prayed with your spouse about how you're going to be a generous couple or a generous family? How many times have you had the discussion before you got to church? Or when we get to church, is it, oh, yeah, I forgot the offering. you got to check? Like, oh, let's just go online. We'll just do it online today. That's, I'm guilty of that, too. But what Paul's saying here is the reason you don't give and feel compelled to give is because you've already been praying and thinking about this ahead of time. You must decide already in your heart what you're going to do so that you're ready to do it. You're ready to give when that time comes. And this is between the, the family members. So you come prepared. You have spent time praying. Asking God where you feel led to give and what you feel led to give so that when you come, there is no reluctancy, there is no compulsion. You're guarding your heart from two things, in my opinion, as I thought through this. The first one is greed, not wanting to let go of something. When I pray about something and I decide in my heart what God is leading me to do, it protects my heart from greed in the moment from needing to hold on tightly to things. The other thing it protects you from, though, is pride. Because oftentimes in church, we find great joy in the identity that comes with the dollar amount that we give. Many people throughout church, and maybe in your experience, have felt that they're entitled to some sort of authority because they write a bigger check. And that is simply pride welling up inside of you. And Paul is saying, you protect yourself from this this way. Can can I be transparent with you like I haven't already been, right? During COVID, uh, one of the things that came out of that that I personally am grateful for, so please hear this the right way. I'm not bashing any other way another church does it, but one of the things I was grateful for is that we stopped passing an offering tray because I don't know about you, but when that tray would get passed, I would be sitting there. Yes, even as the preacher at the church, I would be sitting there, and we give online, and so the tray is passing. It's in my hands, and all of a sudden, it's people, I'm the preacher. Of course they're looking at me. Like, I got to put something in here. Like, and you, what is that? You feel compelled. That is not something resolved. There's no peace behind that. Again, it's okay. Some people, it's not a struggle for them. You're like, that was never a struggle for me, and I wish you would still pass them. Well, we're never going to again, but I'm really... (laughs) But it's okay if it wasn't a struggle for you. It was a big struggle for me. So when we put the boxes on the walls, and it's like, hey, when you have decided in your heart what to give, you go and you make a decision and you do that. To me, lined up better with 2 Corinthians 9. It's a way to protect your heart. It was was a way for me to protect my heart. It's a way for us to decide in our hearts what we're going to give. Now, saying it again, God's not short on money, so knowing that he doesn't need our money should play a factor in that. As I'm praying, it's not like, oh, man, I'm praying, and God, if I don't give, somehow the kingdom won't make it, as though it hasn't survived 2,000 years without you. Like, come on, like, this isn't about what I get. This is about, God, what are you calling us as a family to do? We want to hold it with open hands, not with clenched fists. What do you, where are you leading us? And we spend time praying ahead of time. But God doesn't need it. One of my favorite stories from from the New Testament has to do with Peter and Jesus. I don't know if you remember reading through this, where Peter is worried about paying taxes. And Jesus is like, don't worry about it. And Peter's like, no, I'm worrying about it. He's like, no, don't worry about it. He's like, no, I'm worried. You know Rome is a thing, Jesus. They kill us if we don't pay taxes. I'm a little worried. Jesus says, go fish. All right? Which is kind of a cool way to talk to Peter consistently. You know what? Go fishing, Peter. You need to get your mind right. And so he does, and he goes fishing, and he pulls out a fish, and it has a gold coin in it that will pay the taxes perfectly. And what does that prove? It proves that there is never going to be a time where God can't provide the financial means he needs to for ministry, period. He doesn't need it. What about the five loaves and the two fish? You don't think he could have done it with a different amount? You think that he was like, oh, that guy only has three, and that guy has two. Let me wait for the kid. I know the kid's coming, and that's what—no, no. The five loaves and two fish, what was he doing? It's like, no, like, hey, this kid made an offering and he's gonna take it and multiply it. The point of that story is that whatever we offer to him without holding back, surrender to him. Like, God, this is yours, like, take it. You can have it. And he's gonna take it and he's gonna multiply it. That's what he's gonna do. He takes something that's offered to him, surrendered to him in faith. Here it is, Lord. This is what we feel like you're calling us to do. We're gonna hold it with open hands and you take it and multiply it. And that's what he does. He does that all the time. Paul's going to continue here with the why and the how a little bit. Look at verse 10. So now he who supplies to the sower, seed to the sower and bread for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. A couple of things. Verse 10. He tells him right away, you don't have to worry Because God's going to provide everything that you actually need. And so I don't know if you've experienced this in your life, but like throughout my time in ministry, one of the reasons that has caused us hesitation, I'm being very transparent with you today, has caused us to have hesitation in our giving from time to time has been a worry about provision. Like if we give, how do we pay that bill? But I can tell you without giving you specific examples over and over again in my life with my wife Sarah, When we decide to give, somehow God has provided every single time. That's what he's saying here in verse 10. If he's taking care of all of these other things, why do you think he won't take care of you? Which means our giving is a response of faith. Do I trust that he will provide for me? Do I actually believe that the living God wants what's good for me? And if so, I can hold everything with an open hand verse 11, when he says, if you do this, if you give, God will provide for you in every way. What does he mean by every way? Does he mean that somehow if, if I give, God will increase my life financially? Some of you are waiting for me to say no, but no, he does. That's what it means. Do you know what every means? It means every way. So every single way. Is finance a part of that? Absolutely. That's a principle in the Bible. Look at Proverbs chapter 3. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled to plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So does he mean that if I give to God, God will return to me financially? Sure, it can mean that. It absolutely can. But does he mean only financially? Meaning if I, if I plant a seed of finances in the kingdom of God, somehow I'm going to be financially benefited from it like it's the ultimate investment plan. Absolutely not. Some of you are like, man, we were close. The image here is sowing and seed is really revealing. Tim Keller says it this way. He says this, what you harvest in sowing is often quite different in its look to what you plant. What you harvest, right, it it looks a lot different. And so more often than not, when I plant the seed of finance into the kingdom of God, what I harvest more often than not is not going to be money. Because that's not the point. One commentator said it this way, compared it to a peach seed. Have you you ever seen a peach seed? It's a horrible, ugly thing. looks like a rat brain. Nobody wants to eat it, right? But when you plant that seed, what happens? Like a, a tree with luscious, incredible fruit comes out. And this is what Paul is saying. When you hold your finances with an open hand and you say, God, everything I have is yours. I'm giving it to you and do with it what you will, Lord. What he produces from it is not the point of the giving. The giving is, God, this is all yours anyway. Let me plant this into the right kingdom, your kingdom and not my kingdom. And when he brings about a produce, more often than not, it's not money. So what is it? I think the most common and most beneficial fruit that's produced from our financial dealings and generosity into the kingdom of God is contentment. I think God produces in us a contentment. Many have said that the secret to a happy life is not having all that you want, but wanting all that you have. Paul says this in Philippians 4. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He compares a godly life to a life of contentment over and over again, learning how to live a life of contentment, being grateful for all that you have, and living from a place of gratitude instead of living from a place of greed. I mean, looking at this, there's really two ways to live. The first way is this. You think that my life is mine, everything I have I've worked for, everything I have I've saved up, everything I have, and God wants some of it, and so I feel like I should give God some of that, right? He deserves it, and so I've got a bunch of stuff, and God needs some of it, so I'm going to give God some, maybe 10%. That's a lot. I'll work my way up to it, but this is mine. I've worked for it. I'll give God what he wants. You know what that is? That's a sign of spiritual immaturity. That is a sign of a disciple who has stalled in their growth and apprenticeship to Jesus. Because you have failed to recognize that this is all his anyway. The second way to live, though, is this. Father, this is all of yours. You've asked me to take care of it for a little while. You've asked me to steward it. And so I want to give freely. Where are you leading me to give? And the question you begin to wrestle with in your heart when that becomes the case, when that's what you're going through, the question in your heart is this. Not how much do I have to give? It's how much am I not giving and why am I not giving it? Like where else could I give? Like, God, what else can I do? There's a difference in your mindset and in the way that you approach Jesus when you live this way. You ever been around somebody like this? somebody who just seems to get it, somebody who understands, like, man, I just need to be completely and totally generous with everything that I have. It's a pretty incredible thing. Years ago, uh, when I was here at New Hope, I was in the teaching minister role. I wasn't the lead minister. I was still learning. quite. I'm still learning so much. You're like, yeah, you have a lot to learn. I know. And I'm continuing to learn a lot. Don Lamb uh, had a friend that was coming to town. Don, longtime member of our church, longtime elder. Uh, a mentor of mine. And he said, uh, hey, I got a buddy coming to town who's a really godly man. He's a great leader. And I think that you could learn a lot from him. Would you be able to have a cup of coffee with him? He's only going to be in town for today. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. He said, this guy's owned like five businesses. He's extremely successful, but he's so godly. And I think you could learn a lot from him. I'm like, oh, I'm going to ask him about some of these things. And so I get to the Starbucks and I sit down and I meet this friend of his and we spend a while small talking and he's asking me questions about my life. And, and so then I lead in with the question, hey, Don tells me that you've owned like four or five businesses and, and you've just got a lot of leadership insight. And He paused. He interrupted me. He said, oh, hold on, wait, which was weird. But he stopped me and he said, I need to correct you. I've never owned a business in my life. So immediately my brain went to this. Don's a liar. That was my first thought. Or Don's pranking me, which is totally like right up. That could have been a possibility. Or third, this dude's coming clean to a preacher in Starbucks and didn't know how to tell Don. (laughs) I'm like, what is going on here? And then he said this. He said, in the most sincere and authentic way. He said, I've never owned a business in my life, but God's asked me to take care of a few over the years and I've tried so hard to be faithful to him and taking care of what's his and I thought man I'll never forget that here's a guy who worked really hard really hard and everything in the world and the culture around him would have told him you've worked hard you've earned that and yet somehow at the peak of success he was able to say this isn't even mine I'm just being asked to take care of it for a little while Look, if it can be gone like that, if you can die tomorrow morning like that, then what you have can be gone too, right? And if the giver of your life, the promiser of hope that you have, that you're going to live forever, is saying, take care of this for a little while, knowing that it could be gone tomorrow, then it is all his. Every single thing is his, and we are called to simply take care of it while we're here, to steward it for the benefit of his kingdom. Look at how Paul describes this. Verse 12. This service that you perform of becoming a generous person, of giving of your finances, it's not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace that he has given to you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. What he's describing here is you've been given so much. And when you don't hold on tightly to it and you give it away, you only take what you need and you're generous with the rest of it. What happens in the world is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Now he's making a parallel here to Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus 16, the Israelites are out in the wilderness and they're incapable of providing for themselves with the environment that they're in. And so God produces for them what the Bible calls manna, right? One preacher said manna in Hebrew is what in the world? Like, what is this, right? It's a mix between a protein bar and a Twinkie. Like, it's just this weird thing that God provided for them to have some sustenance, okay? And so they eat this. But here was the one rule when it came to manna. You could only take what you and your family needed for that day. And if you took anything additional, it would rot before you ever got to enjoy it. So think about what that does to the greed. Like it's a built-in accountability around greed. You can't take more than you need. I can only take what I need. And I have to trust that tomorrow morning he's going to provide exactly what I need for that day. And this is the rule, right? The rule, the example that comes from this is this. When we hoard excess it rots our soul. In the same way the manna rotted, when we do that, it rots our soul. I mean, lots of good teaching around this. Some of the things that I've learned in listening and reading, teaching this week are this look, it's not bad for you to, to save a lot. It's not bad for you to save, to save a lot of money. But the problem comes when saving becomes the most important thing to you hoarding up as much as you need for that one day that's going to come in the future, it begins to rot away at your soul. Well, how do I know if I'm idolizing saving over being generous? Well, when you save an exuberantly amount of more than you give, you've got a problem. When you're consumed with simply saving and never really giving or just giving a little bit off the end, it's beginning to rot your soul. Likewise, it's not bad to have really nice things. Like, that is such a myth in the church. Like, if you're a Christian, give it all away and suffer. That's the only way to live. Like, no, no. Christians are allowed to enjoy things in life. God gives good gifts. You can enjoy things. But if you're not careful, those good gifts can begin to rot your soul. That new vehicle, that new house, that expensive vacation, whatever it is, can begin to eat away at your soul. How do I know? How do I know if I'm running into problems? Well, if you spend way more than you ever give, your soul is beginning to rot away. And you may not see it right away, but that's what's going on underneath the surface, and this is why he says in verses 14 and 15, one of the ways to become this generous giver is to recognize what God's doing when you give. Like, think about it. When we're generous, what does God do with it? It's incredible. Two weeks from now, Mission Sunday, is going to be, the lobby's going to be full with people. And you don't think that they pause like Paul wrote just what you just read. You don't think they pause every once in a while and they say, thank you, God, for new hope. Because they don't hold tightly to everything. They open their hands and they're generous. You don't think that these missionaries around the world are praising God for your generosity the same way that the churches were praising for the generosity of the church in Macedonia and the generosity of the church in Corinth if they gave to Jerusalem. It's, man, the thanksgiving spreads like a wildfire when a generous people invest in the kingdom of God. Do you know that we have a full-time missionary on our staff? Many of you don't know that. He's a staff member. He's full-time. He's going to be here Mission Sunday. Glenn and Sherry Russell, they serve in David, Panama, and for years we've paid their full salary as a church because of your generosity. You don't think that when they come to the States, one of the first places they're coming is the New Hope so they can get up here and say, thank you. Thank you for not holding it so tightly. Thank you for recognizing that everything is God's and we're just asked to take care of it for a little while. Tell you why I think this is a discipleship issue. I, I grew up in a home where we didn 't have a lot, given our current cultural context, I mean everybody in America has what they need. I get that, but in in, in my particular home growing up, given where we grew up, we just didn 't have a lot. we were what you would call a struggling family. My uncle raised me, and he raised my brother and he worked really, really hard and so to critique what we had and didn't have is hard because he loved us a lot. And I am not here to say he didn't love us. But our home was a tough place to be. It was messy. It was filthy. And so I never wanted to be there because of the people that would come in and out of our home and we would move around a lot. We just didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have nice things. And so it was a really hard place to grow up. It was really difficult. And what that did to my brain as I was growing is it created in me what I would call a survival mindset. Everything that I got, I needed to hold on to because I thought I might not get this again. And I've never had this. And I don't know how even I got it. So I'm going to hold on to it. And I began to grip tight onto things. Maybe you've been there in your life. Right? And I never wanted to eat at home because the house was so messy. So anytime I got money, I would go eat. We always had this running joke. My brother spent his money on clothes. I spent my money on the food court at the mall. And then when I would wear his clothes, but then when I left for college, I didn't have clothes. (laughs) Because he's like, you're not taking them. And so... We had this dynamic, and it was this survival mindset of, like, it created bad habits in me to eat out all the time because I just didn't, I couldn't go home and eat because of the mess. And it created this survivalist mindset. So the thing that got pushed to the back burner was generosity. There's no way to be generous when you think that you're always trying to survive. But here's what I learned in my apprenticeship to Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus. I learned this. When I think that I'm responsible for my own survival, it is really hard to be open-handed. When I think I'm the one that's responsible for whether or not I survive, it's really hard to be a generous person. And we do this with every part of our lives, don't we? With my salvation, right? I've got to keep God happy. I've got to keep earning it. I've got to keep doing this. And so I'm going to keep doing And yet, no, like it's open. Like he, he has saved you. Live in the abundance of that gift instead of trying to control it. I do it at home, man. i got to control things at home and make sure. Why? Because, and yet, no, I can be generous at home and I can recognize that they are a gift, my wife and children. They are a gift from God to be stewarded and cared for well. Yeah, we do it with our money. I got to hold on to it. And if I don't hold on to it, no one else will. And I've got to survive and I've got to invest. And the last thing we are is generous. And God's saying, just open your hands. Every situation. This is why Paul said in Philippians 4, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. Whether I have a lot or I have a little, I can be content. Because I know that everything I have is his anyway. So I just trust him with it. I just trust him with it. That's the secret to contentment. So how do we do this? Really quickly, let me walk through a couple practical things that you can begin to do as I thought through this. The first thing is this, is pray. And I don't mean that to be cliche. This is why Paul said, decide in your heart ahead of time what you're going to give. He's indicating you should be praying about this. Look, Jesus talked a lot about money. Many people inaccurately say he talked more about money than anything else. That's not true. Just so you know that. He talked about the kingdom way more than he talked about money, but he did talk a lot about money. He talked a lot about money, which means that it's something in our discipleship that's important. So when I say pray, pray about God. What's going on in my heart? Let me ask you this question. How does your heart react to giving away money? That might be an indicator that, man, I need some soul work here. I need some soul work. Do I feel like I'm not going to survive? Do I feel like I need to hold on to it? Do I feel like I need to ask a million questions and I can't just give because everything has to be perfect and I have to be in control of all of my giving or can I just trust God? You've put something on our hearts. We agree. My spouse and I, my family and I, we're going to be generous. Second thing is this. Start small. Start where you're at, not where you should be. Many people have paralysis by analysis when it comes to their finances. They say, oh, we, we need to give 10%. So until we can, we won't give anything. What? what? Start where you're at. Because God's after your heart, not a percentage. And so give what you can give because you're trying to apprentice under Jesus. Third, give first, or in the language of the Bible, your first fruits. In ancient agrarian cultures, the followers of Jesus, they would give immediately from their harvest, immediately before they did anything else, as a thank you to God for the rain, or in our case right now, for the sunshine. That's what we want to thank Him for right now, right? Farmers, amen. All right, for the sunshine. So what that means for us in our day that it means for us that as soon as we get our paycheck we give we don't wait until everything's done and if we have enough then we'll give. We trust God, I trust you. And so I'm going to give. Third or whatever number it is, direct one specific expense to generosity. You could sell something, you could stop a streaming service. I said it, right? So instead of paying YouTube TV or Hulu, maybe for a couple months you decide with that little bit of money we're going to be generous. We're just going to be generous. We're going to we're going to do something to take the next step in generosity. And the last one I'll put is tithe. The New Testament does not teach that we have to tithe. It doesn't. And many people get really excited about saying that to people. But here's the deal. For 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have used that as an economic floor. It's a good starting place to trust God, to say, I can live on 90% and trust that I can give you 10%. And maybe you said, we've been doing that for years. Well, maybe for you, it's a graduated tithe. Maybe for you, it's, hey, it's time for us to increase that 10% to the next so that we can say, God, we're just trusting you with this. And again, I'm not saying give it here. Give it where you feel led to give it. But give. Be a generous people. Watch what God does in your heart and your life and the community and the church. As we decide together, you know what, God? This is all yours. You've asked us to take care of it for a little while. Here you go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hard passages of scripture that challenge us. And in the United States, it is a challenge for us to think about our finances, to think about giving, to think about sacrificing. That's hard. God, I just pray right now in this room that we would really recognize this isn't about a number. This isn't about writing a check to New Hope. This isn't about uh, some financial program. This is about our hearts as we are apprenticing under Jesus, as we want to become more like him. We want to be able to do what Jesus would do if he were us. And So when we think about our money, the first thing we want to do is spend time with you praying, thanking you for having it. No matter how little or how much. Father, then we want to invest in your kingdom. We want to be a kingdom of heaven-minded people instead of kingdom of earth. And so maybe our first investment with what you've blessed us with be into the kingdom of God. We trust you with this. We get excited to think what you'll do with it as your kingdom expands. We give our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.